On page 8, <clears throat> you will find um, our New Testament reading in the passage I am uh, going to be preaching from. It's good to be back with you. I think it's been a few weeks since I've been able to uh, be down here, and uh, it's, it's good to be back. Uh, I, I know you all had a wonderful Easter uh, season here, and so now I'm back, and we're jumping back into our series on First. Peter, if you're visiting this evening, um, if it's first time visiting, uh, I'm, my name is Robert Cunningham. I'm one of the pastors here. Marshall, uh, Marshall, who's been talking up at this point, is the pastor of this congregation. Um, I, I, I kind of add a preaching uh, voice. My role at Taste Creek is, is uh, one of preaching, teaching, and uh, at our main campus and occasionally down here. And um, so I get to come in and out and, and preach occasionally. And we are going through a series on the book of First Peter. And we took a break for Easter and all of that. And now we're jumping back in. And we're jumping back in at a pivotal moment in the letter because it's kind of a transition from one major uh, theme to another. And I'll explain that here in a second. But let's, let's give our attention to the reading and then we will jump in it together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are, upon, are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The word of the Lord. Lord, we open ourselves up now to your eternal truths. We ask that you would take your revelation and that lasts forever, your word that cannot fail, and apply it down into um, our individual circumstances, um, our day-to-day -day lives, um, our hearts, emotions, our minds, Lord, that your word would capture us um, in every way. pray that you give me strength uh, to be faithful to uh, the passage and preach it well in a way that honors you, and forgive me where I fail you. Um, and don't hold that, don't hold my sins, don't hold my failures against your people. They are hungry for your word, and so I pray that you would feed them um, by your spirit this evening. Uh, through Christ and for Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we return to First Peter, um, like I said, we find ourselves transitioning from one major section to another. The section that we are concluding, if you've been with us, you know... The section that we are concluding has been on submission. We spent a good, oh goodness, month and a half talking about submission. The section that we are entering into will be on suffering. And we're going to spend about as much time talking about suffering. Those are the two major practical uh, themes of 1 Peter. Submission and suffering. That's, that's essentially what Peter has for exiles in the world. He wants to talk to them about what it looks like to submit and how to suffer well. And the bridge between those two is our passage today. Um, Peter is going to conclude his teaching on submission 
that began in uh, chapter 2, verse 13. He's going to conclude his teaching on submission with a word to every single one of us. If you remember, he's been talking about the call to submit in unique, difficult situations. Um, he's gone through all of these different situations that the church was uh, facing, the early church was facing, and he essentially said, this is what it looks like to submit in that situation. The section we are, um, the, the, the passage we're entering into now, though, is introduced there in verse 8, where it says, finally, all of you. That Greek word translated finally is probably better understood as in summary, in summation. This is Peter summing up submission that began way back in chapter 2, and it is a final word on submission to each of us. This is what it looks like for every single member of this community to submit. This is what I expect for every single person here to do. In parenting, you have... Um, you, you understand that dynamic. In parenting, you have each of your children with their unique personalities, their unique struggles, their unique gifts, uh, their unique situations and stories and all these different things. And so uh, parenting requires unique discipleship, uh, unique guidance for each of them. Um, that's what Peter's been doing. He talked to slaves in the ancient world. This is what submission looks like for you. Wives married to unbelieving spouses. This is what submission looks like for you. Husbands as leaders of the home. This is what submission looks like for you. So he's been doing kind of individual discipleship. But then as a parent, you also know that there are certain expectations that apply across the board to every single one of us. Everyone in the family is expected to be this way, to do these things. This is a standard for every child in the family. When I was putting my kids to bed last night, I was thinking about the passage and, um, and, and that, that, that kind of idea of Peter having this as the expectation for every member of the family. And I asked, I asked them, boys, what, would, what are some things that mommy and daddy expect from each of you? Not, not individually, but across the board, you know as a child in this family, this is the expectation. Uh, kind of Cunningham family rules, so to speak. Uh, immediately one of them said, broccoli. <laughs> okay. Another one right after that said, you have to hate Louisville. Then another brother corrected him and said, well, you're not allowed to hate in our family because hate is wrong, so you just have to really dislike Louisville. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, if you want encouragement, if you're feeling like a bad parent, uh, you know, your pastor, uh, we, we talked about broccoli and hating Louisville before we got to Jesus. I had to prompt them to get to Jesus, like, say Jesus. We love Jesus in this family. Um, so, you know, I get it. If you were to ask Peter, uh, if you were to ask Peter, what is the expectation for every member of the church family? What should we be known for? What should all of us be doing? His answer would be these verses. Finally, a word to all of you. He speaks of what we should be known for within our community and outside our community, which is how I'm going to structure the sermon. A word to all of us regarding submission within this community and outside our community. Verse 8 is within, verse 9 is outside. So within our community, again, verse 8, finally, to all of you, he concludes his teaching on submission by applying submission to every single one of us. And what he does is he gives us five adjectives here, 
which may seem at first to be random and disconnected, but he is actually using um, a grammatical technique that beautifully emphasizes the central command there of brotherly love. The grammar follows what, uh, when we, when we uh, the word's exegete, I don't know, when we dissect scripture, um, often you'll find what was called a chiasm. Um, and it's used grammatically to emphasize something. And this one follows an um, A, B, C, B, A pattern. If you look at, look at, the, look at the verse, look at it, verse A, look at the five adjectives uh, with me, you will see that the first and last speak to the mind. Do you see that? Uh, unity of mind and humble mind. The second and fourth speak to the emotions. Uh, sympathy and tenderness. I think it says tender heart in the ESV. Sympathy and tender heart. And then in the middle of the chiasm, like, a, like a, the meat of the sandwich, so to speak, you have the very significant Greek word that we translate brotherly love. But that doesn't, um, the weight of that word doesn't really come across with that translation. This, this, this was a culture where family was everything. And they had one word that was used to describe the unique love you have only for families. Only for family. This word was only used for family. You've heard the word many times, but you probably didn't rec recognize it. Um, the word is Philadelphia. Um, we have a city, the city of what? Brotherly love called Philadelphia. That's, uh, Philadelphia is not called the city of brotherly love because they're nice. They're actually really mean people there. Um, it, it, is, it is Philadelphia uh, translated brotherly love. Within the church, here's what Peter's saying, within the church, how far does the call of mutual submission, love, commitment, sacrifice, all these things go? Peter takes the word culturally reserved only for family and a very bold, controversial move, he makes it the expectation for every member of the church. This is now your family. This community here is the seat of brotherly love. But what does that even mean? Well, it's at the center of a chiasm for a reason. The other adjectives are descriptive of brotherly love. And as I already said, the first and last speak to the mind. The second and fourth speak to the emotions. And both are necessary for brotherly love. You can't be the person of mind and neglect emotions and call it love. You can't be all motions and neglect the mind and call it love. It is mind and heart together in brotherly love. And basically what Peter does is he takes the call to submit that we've been looking at. He takes the call to submit and he applies it to the mind and heart. What is brotherly love? You take your mind and your heart and you submit. That's what he's doing. That's, what you, that's, that's the common thread here. Unity and humility of mind. What is that? This is a mind that is concerned with the thoughts, the ideas, the opinions, etc. of others. This is a mind in submission to others. Sympathy and tenderness. What is that? These are emotions that are focused on the needs, the concerns, the pain, etc. of others. These are emotions in submission. So the call of the church is to be a place of familial love achieved by every member of the family submitting both mind and heart to the community. That's his call for all of us. Finally, to all of you, I want you to submit your mind and your emotions to each other, thus creating Philadelphia, brotherly 
love. So before I move on to the next point, this is so important, let me spend a moment of application here and help us maybe understand what that would even look like because um, those feel like uh, theoretical ideas. What would it look like to submit our minds and our hearts to each other? Um, do you know what I think that is asking us to do on the most basic and practical level? Die to our preferences. Where do, where do mind and emotions converge together? I think it's our preferences. That's why they're our preferences. They're things that we believe in and things, they are things that we are emotionally committed to. They're things that we're convinced of and we're passionate about. These preferences, these hobby horses, these things that are unique to us, this is where our mind and emotions converge and Peter is calling us to lay them down, to lay our preferences on the altar and to actually prefer the preferences of others. Now, that is a novel concept in the American church where Christians approach church like, honestly, Americans approach everything as consumerists. My needs, my wants, my preferences are paramount. And if the church isn't prioritizing what I prefer, well, then I'm either going to try to change the church according to what I want, or I'll leave the church and find one that gives me what I want. But either way, I'm going to get what I want. That mindset, I state it very crassly, but that mindset is rampant in American evangelicalism. And it is literally the opposite of how Peter is calling us to do community here. It, literally, we are building churches with the foundation of community as opposite what Peter's asking us to do here. Peter would have us flip the pattern and actually approach church with this question. What do others in the community prefer? What are the preferences of others? It is so rare... It's so rare to, to find this, but when you encounter it, man, it is so beautiful. Let me sh share a few, just as pastor of this church, let me share a few times that where I've been like, whoa, refreshingly amazing talking to members of our church because they were living this out. And maybe, maybe in me uh, sharing uh, what some things they, they've said to me, maybe you could start kind of getting it practically in your life. Um, I, I was praying, I thought about three. I won't use their names, but one was a, um, was a senior adult in our church um, at, at the main campus. There's a, uh, I don't, we don't have many of you here. We don't have any of you here, um, here. <laughs> but at the main campus, we've, we've got, you know, we've got seniors. And, um, and you know, uh, the church is, TCPC is growing and it's getting younger and younger. Um, you know, it, 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 you put yourself in their shoes. It's tough. Well, I was meeting, one of, one of them said they wanted to meet with me. And usually when that happens, it's, uh-oh, here it comes, you know. They're going to tell me what's happened to my church. I feel left out. I feel marginalized. Da, 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 da. And, and this person, this senior, wanted to meet with me only for this reason, to say this, in essence. This is a direct quote, but, but, but we talked about it for a long time. It said, Pastor... I want you to forget about me and build a church that my grandchildren will come to. That's all I care about. Forget me. I want you to build a church that my grandchildren will come to. I said, Whoa. I had a college student. 
at our main campus. This was a while ago before this campus existed. And uh, we had a college student come and, and uh, and he was, he was new to our church. He's actually new to the faith. So the whole thing, I, I think, was kind of weird for him. And, um, and so I, I said something I, I was engaging with. I said, so, man, what's, what's it been like coming to TCPC? And he said, oh, man, it's, it's been so good. I don't really get the organ, though. What's with the organ? <laughs> and, um, and I was about to launch into my uh, defense of the organ, which I've had to give many times to some of you. Um, uh, <laughs> so... And, um, but he said, he said, but you know what? There's this guy who sits, who sits close to me every week, and man, he loves that thing. And he said, and I love watching him love it. He said, I I'm good with the organ. I was like, thank you, college student. That's so beautiful. Like, I don't get that loud instrument, but that dude really does. I like watching him love it. I'll give you one more. A longtime member of our church. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's anybody here that fits this de demographic. Maybe, maybe the Carters. Um, I don't know. But, but there is a, the, the, the most difficult thing. You just need to know this uh, for, for, for those of you who are engaging with our community. There's nothing more difficult in church than to be a part of a church as it grows and transitions. To be there through that whole cycle. It's really difficult. The diversity that's never talked about in church is the diversity of people who have been there forever and, and people who just kind of come and join. And, and that dynamic is so difficult. And it's so hard for people who have always been at church to come and be like, who are all of you? And what have you done with my church that I've been in forever? And um, it's difficult. And I had, but I had one long-term member say this to me. I love this quote. I'm just so happy to see the church I have always loved filled with people who have no idea who I am. Isn't that an awesome way to put it? I love the church that I have given my blood, sweat, tears, money, everything to build, and now it's filled with people who don't have a clue who I am, have no idea my story and what I've done to get this place. I love that. I can go on and on with things like this because, honestly, um, one of the things I love about TCPC is it is such a, a, a selfless, gracious community. But this is, this is the mindset. I wanted to get practical here for help, to help us imagine the mindset of how I think P Peter is asking us to approach community. What happens when you have a community devoted to this, what I call, lovely competition to out-sacrifice one another? Literally fighting, not for our preferences, but fighting to outsubmit one another. The game we play here is not the game for me to get what I want, but the game for you to get what you want. And we'll see who wins. What emerges from that competition is Philadelphia, a new family, a brotherly love. Now that's what it looks like for all of us to live out submission within our community. Finally, to all of you, I want you to do this. But now he's going to tr transition to what it looks like for all of us to live out submission outside our community because all of that is, is beautiful and, and wonderful and we can strive for that within this community. We can strive for this brotherly love within this community. But outside this community, in a world that perhaps doesn't like this community, what would it look like out there? And that's where he transitions in verse 9. 
Um, and honestly, verse 9 begins the whole new section of First Peter. He says this, outside our community. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This command, as I said, transitions First Peter into teaching on suffering that will that uh, will last all the way through chapter 4. So get ready for several weeks on suffering from, from either me or Marsh because it's going to be a big theme for us. And the reason why is because he's transitioning now to how do we engage the world and, and, and he's just going to be talking about... Um, he's going to be talking about humbly living out submission to the world and recognizing that when you do that, you're going to suffer. When you submit yourself to the world, you're going to suffer at the hands of the world. And so he begins here with this command, and his command has both a prohibition and a prescription, meaning a what not to do and a what to do. Do you see that? Here's what all of us are not to do. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now what is obviously assumed there is the evil mistreatment of the world. It's going to happen, so don't be surprised when it happens. It's going to happen. So what Peter's concerned about is how do you respond when it happens because it's going to happen. And once again, he's just so relentless. His response, his expectation is humble submission. When they do evil, when they revile, do not retaliate. Do not repay evil. Do not revile. Now what's interesting here to me is that he delineates evil and reviling. And I think that is important for us to understand. I think we know as Christians that, um, that we are not allowed to return overt, obvious acts of evil. In their context, this was intense persecution. So it, it would be like if they kill you, if they kill people in our community, we aren't allowed to get revenge and go kill them. That's, Christians can't do that, okay? If they do evil to us, we can't turn around and do that same evil back to them. And I think we understand that Christian principle, and I think we're willing to follow that one. But Peter takes it a step further, and he says, he uses an interesting word here. He goes beyond just overt evil, and he says, if they revile you, you cannot revile them back. Now, revile gets into a different arena that I do think we struggle with. This takes it out of those acts of just obvious evil, and it gets into the realm of criticism, of mocking, of shaming, of arrogance, of competition, of debating, things like that. And it's here where I think we have to really check ourselves. When I survey uh, Christianity's engagement of the world in our day, it seems to me that we are in one big back-and-forth reviling cycle. <laughs> That's how I'd put it. The world criticizes us, we criticize the world. The world points out our flaws, we point out their flaws. The world mocks us with uncharitable, snarky, straw man, internet stuff, social media. We mock the world with uncharitable, snarky, straw man stuff on social media. It seems to me that we are trapped in this reviling exchange with the world, doesn't it to you? And Peter is calling us to end that cycle of insult. When reviled, you do not revile back. That our posture is this, you can mock us, you can criticize us, you can slander us, you can marginalize us, you can say whatever you want about us, but the one thing you can't do is bait us into reviling back. We're not going to do it. Like our Savior before us, who, when afflicted, opened not his mouth. Direct quote. When afflicted, opened not his mouth. You will hear silence from us when you revile us. 
Now, that's not to say that Christians are a silent community. We are not, actually. We are not a passive community in this world. We are actually a very bold, vocal, and at times protesting community in the world. But here's the difference, and you've got to understand this difference, okay? This is really important for the way you engage the world. We don't defend ourselves. We defend justice, right? You can harm us. You can revile us, but you cannot harm and revile the poor or the oppressed or the needy or the marginalized or the vulnerable or the unborn. In these situations, you're going to hear from us in loud ways. But if you revile us, we will not defend ourselves. We will not revile back. This is the posture that he is asking us. Now, as, as if that wasn't hard enough, Peter takes the command even further. It's one thing not to repay them, to not revile back, not trade evil for evil. It's another thing to bless those who mistreat you. But that is his expectation here. So what not to do, the prohibition? You can't repay evil for evil. You can't repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, this is what to do. Bless. This, of course, has echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, and no doubt Peter is only repeating what he heard time and time again from Jesus himself. We are a community that blesses our enemies. That's what we do. The word there for bless is a significant one. It means you actually want to see them flourish. You want God to bless them. It's benediction is what it is. When, if you want to know what your posture toward the world should be, um, in a little bit, when Marshall stands with his arms raised asking for the Lord to bless and keep you, for his favor to be upon you, you should receive that, yes, and you should see that as your posture toward the world that hates you. Arms up, bless them, Lord, keep them, shine your face upon them. You hate me, not only will I not repay you with hatred, I will repay you with benediction. I will not delight in your downfall. I will be brokenhearted over it. I will weep. I will not secretly want to see my enemies and critics miserable. I want to see them flourish. It brings me no joy when they get what they deserve. I actually want them to get what they don't deserve. The blessing and mercy and grace of God. It's not just that I will not revile them. I will pray for them. Now, just like our first point, where I said American Christianity uh, seems to be really missing that. It's built on the notion of me prioritizing my preferences rather than the preferences of others. I think here in this point we need to sadly admit that we have subverted this command too. Do you know how I think the world sees American evangelicals? In fact, it, it might be a good exercise to ask your, your neighbors or classmates or co-workers or stuff and just humbly listen just say when you think of Christians what do you think of I've done that engaging and I'll tell you how I think um, I think I think they see us as defensive at best and militant at worst at best we are so easily offended by the world just petty petty defensiveness how dare you think that about us? How, how dare you say that about us? How dare you do that to us? As if any form of persecution shouldn't be happening to us. But in the worst case, I think the world feels like Christians view them as a cultural enemy to be defeated, not as a neighbor to love. I think this is a reputation, and this is literally the opposite of what Peter is commanding from us in our passage. 
but let's not just speak evaluative of American Christianity as a whole. Let's, let's, uh, that, that gets us off the hook. That's easy to make those broad um, evaluations. Let's have the humility to evaluate ourselves here. Here's my central question of application tonight, okay? Um, if, I, if, if This is Peter saying, all of you, everybody in the community, I want you to be known for this. So here would be my question. What is this community known for? What is TCPC known for both inside and outside this church? What is, oh, take it off TCPC, what is downtown known for both inside and outside the church? If you were to say, what is the, the family rules? This is something we all do. What would that be? Now, the only appropriate way to answer that question is by personalizing it, right? Peter says, finally, all of you, this is a word to every single one of us. Ultimately, TCPC downtown is known for whatever its members are known for. So press it down even further. Friend, what are you known for inside and outside the church? If you were to ask a fellow member of this community, what am I known for here? What would you get? Um, and, and if there's nobody to ask because nobody knows you, that's a bigger problem. But if you were to ask, what am I known for, what would you get? Would it be that you are just a person who does not insist on their own ways, on their own preferences, is just so eager to prioritize the preferences and needs of others, who seems utterly indifferent to what you want and obsessed with what the community wants? If that's not what you would get, then there needs to be some form of repentance take place in your life. And it starts by putting your preferences on the altar. If you were to ask your neighbors outside, if you ask your neighbors, co-workers, non-Christian friends outside the community, what am I known for? What do you think of me? What would you get? Again, if you don't have anybody to ask there, that's a bigger problem. What would you get? Would it be things like kindness, humility, love, forbearance? Or is it you got to win the argument? You got to be right. You always have an agenda. Or is it, how much to be known for this? I disagree with you on everything you believe, but I can't disagree with the way you treat me. I genuinely believe you want to see me blessed. If that's not our neighbor's response, then we're missing something and we need to repent there too. So with that, uh, with that in mind, uh, I think we can all just agree that we, we need help here. We need a change here. We all got issues and we need help. We need help to become a community like this, and that's where Peter goes. I'm not going to spend much time here because, honestly, it's going to be some, a major theme in the coming weeks. The call to submit will surely bring suffering, and Peter's going to help us suffer well. Show us the blessings that come in and through this suffering. But we'll close with that. Finish verse 9. For to this you were called. You were literally called to bless those who revile you. Why? that you may obtain a blessing. What a paradox. If you submit to and bless those who mistreat you, you will obtain a blessing. If you die to your preferences, if you love your enemies, you will be blessed. That sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, right? That doesn't feel like a blessing. It actually feels pretty miserable, if you ask me. To 
to respond to mistreatment with blessing, to die to my preferences. That makes my life harder if I live this out. But in the end, what he's promising is it will be a blessing. Why? Because God, the God who calls you to bless your enemies will bless you for doing so. Peter turns to Psalm 34. Our Old Testament reading is what he quotes here. And there's a reason for that. This is a psalm of David while he is being persecuted. But he's, he's being persecuted for doing the right thing. David had his issues. He had his problems. Some of the psalms, like Psalm 51, are born out of that. But this is a psalm where David was doing the right thing and getting persecuted for it. And that's why Peter takes us to it. And the solution ultimately of Psalm 34 is this. You keep doing what God calls you to do. You keep doing the right thing and just trust that God will bless you and defend you. Trust that God will bless you in this and trust that God will defend you in this. Look at 10 and 11. This is, this is where he's saying, do, do what... This is Peter saying, David did. This psalm is saying, this psalm is doing what I'm asking you to do here. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, meaning whoever desires the good life, whoever desires to be blessed, let him keep his tongue from evil. Don't, don't return reviling for reviling. Let him keep his lips from deceit. Don't speak ill of them. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Don't harm those who mistreat you. Seek peace. Pursue peace. So he's saying, this is what I'm asking of you. Why? Why can we do this? Verse 12 is the, is the big verse. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you know what he's saying there? God will bless you for choosing what is the righteous response, and God will defend you from all evil. God will repay them for their evil. Essentially what he's saying here is you can do this, people, if you just entrust yourselves to God. Trust that in the end his blessing is better than the temporary satisfaction of getting your preferences, and that's pretty satisfying, of winning the argument of proving them wrong, of defeating your enemy, the satisfaction that you get, and, and it is satisfying to slander back when they slander you, to get them when they get you. That's satisfying. He's saying trust that it, the blessing of God is better than that satisfaction. And trust God that God is your defender. You don't have to seek vengeance when mistreated, for vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. My face is against those who do evil. I will bless you, I will defend you, so you can do this. But you know ultimately why we do this? It's because we have had this done to us. What is the gospel if it is not the good news of the God who submitted Himself to us? What is the gospel if it is not the good news of the God who died to His preferences? What is the gospel if it is not the good news of the God who when reviled, when mistreated, did not get us back but instead blessed? We do this because we have had this done to us. Do you know why Peter is so passionate about this? I mean, for a chapter and a half we've been talking about this. Do you know why he won't let this die? Why this is so important to Peter? Because Jesus did this to Peter. Verse 12, 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Can you think of an exception to that? The submission of Jesus on our behalf came to its fullest in His death, which we're about to proclaim now in the sacrament. When the eyes of the Lord were not on the righteousness, He turned His face away from the righteous one. When His ears were not open to their prayer, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence from heaven. He cried, Let this cup pass from me. And God said, No. The Lord's ears were not attentive to His prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. On the cross, the face of the Lord was against the one who does righteous. Why? <laughs> so that the eyes of the Lord can be on us, the unrighteous. So that His ears can be open to our prayers, the unrighteous. That the face of the Lord may shine upon us who do do evil. Ultimately, we do this because our Savior has done this. Let me pray.